Hey everyone, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded on Gay Omago land by me, Liam Miller. He, him, he is a minister in the Uniting Church in Australia. Uh, Love, Rinse, Repeat is supported by Uniting Mission and Education, part of the Uniting Church in Australia Synod of New South Wales and ACT, and I thank them for their support. My guest today returning to the podcast after a bit of an absence is, is Brian Brock. Brian, welcome along. Thanks so much, Liam. Really glad to have to be here. For those who don't know, who haven't maybe listened to our first interview, uh, Dr. Brian Brock is Professor of Moral and Practical Theology at the University of Aberdeen, where he holds a personal chair. Uh, Brian is the author of Wondrously Wounded, Theology, Disability and the Body of Christ, which we talked about previously. Go check out that episode and the book. Uh, and he's also of Christian Ethics in a theo- techn- Technological Age and Singing the Ethos of God on the Place of Christian Ethics in Scripture. And he also edited uh, the Disability, disability of the Christian disability tradition. The Christian tradition. There it is. Glancing over my shoulder to try to see it. Um, and and but today, today, folks, we are discussing his new book, uh, Disability: Living into the Diversity of Christ's Body, uh, out now with Baker Academic, uh, part of their Pastoring for Life series, which you can get up, get now wherever you get books. So, Brian. Let's let's jump into this book, and I guess with with that those other works in mind as we as I, that I just mentioned, and I guess um, what led you to this book, what led you to writing this, and I guess how is it in your mind? How does it differ from what you've attempted before? Well, it differs in that uh, I'm an academic, and I think that's important. But uh, often there's whole swathes of people who just can't get what I'm doing. Uh, so I, in Wondrously Wounded, I'd written my way into clarity about what I wanted to say academically and theologically about disability. And I thought the time had come and I was prepared to really speak just directly to a topic that I think is really important for the church mm-hmm. to hear. I just, um, heard from my dad. He wrote me a letter and said that he'd read it. Uh, and I think it's the only book that he'd ever read. Um, you know, he's a, thoughtful kind of working class guy, uh, but he really doesn't read books. And mm. so I, I, I took that as a real compliment and mm. point that, that I'd actually succeeded. Um, <laughs> for me, disability at the academic level, it, it, I, I'm, I rankle at the idea that it's a niche topic in the way that race and feminist theologies tend to get uh sort of pigeonholed in the academy. Mm. Um, and I think that the ghettoization of particularity uh, is, is just a problem for, for theology itself. Mm. So disability is, in my view, an entry point into a different way of understanding what it means to be a Christian. And I thought uh, I wanted to get that across as, as sort of uh, straightforwardly in common language as, as I could. So, yeah, so this, I think, yes, good to establish that up front. This is a very, you know, entry-level accessible book to help, um, whether it be pastors or, um, you know, our churches and church councils, everyday Christians, you know, who are thinking about, um, and people with disabilities within the church who are thinking about these topics who maybe have never thought about it before. Well, sorry, have probably, but haven't put this extended uh, thought into it. Uh, so, one of the things you point out, which is like, I think a really helpful place to start the conversation is so like in some sense you go, why is it a problem? Right. Why, why, why is this book needed? Why is this conversation not already so much further down the road than we might expect it to be? Uh, And you demonstrate that one of the chief reasons people with disabilities feel unwelcome in church is that churches feel awkward about disability. 
So I guess in, in some ways, how are you hoping that this book can address that unwelcome by easing that awkwardness? Uh, well, I'm trying to help Christians past what I, I have taken to calling the hesitation blues. I mean, nobody wants to turn up in any group and sort of detect an unintentional recoil, right? We'd all, we'd all really find that off-putting. And, yes. um, you know, the stories are uh, very often told that that's how people with disabilities experience coming into church. So uh, I really am trying to get something at, at the most basic level across that's, that's very different and very simple, and that is that sort of difference is really incredible and enlivening. Um, how do we say that in a way that short circuits um, some of the presumptions that lead us to, to the hesitation blues, um, right? We don't want to offend people. I, I have come to a better view that we need to assume that people really do want to do better by people with disabilities. And, you know, Christians are not uh, negatively disposed in principle, and yet they just run up against these um, question marks that stall them out. Um, so at many points in the book, I'm just trying to say, we don't have to, we don't have to embrace those beliefs and um, just go ahead and, and try. And the reason that it's worth trying is highlighted in my subtitle that we're uh, learning to live into the diversity of Christ's body. So I think that the promise of the gospel is that those who we might've feared um, in other terms um, actually are enlivening and interesting and um, teach us something about um, this beautiful created world and the kingdom of Christ that we never would have seen before. And that's the alternative to the game that I think is much more common, which is we hide the things in church that we think of as weakness. And that means we have a, a set of protective shells that build up and it's that's deading and it ends up leaving people stuck and not really knowing you know, feel like, like they're sort of putting on a show when they go to church. Um, so if we lean into the challenge of engaging with people who are different and who seem to face really significant challenges or we experience as having limits that we can't imagine, um, that's helping us face fears and misshapen hopes that I think are a real barrier to the gospel. Mm, thank you for that. I think that's really helpful. I think there's, there's two little threads I want to pull out there. One is... Um, I was thinking about how you opened the introduction, which is welcome, gentleness, presence, attentiveness, commitment. This is all Christians need to know about disability. disability. Uh, simple words that sometimes ask more of us than we want to give. And I think something that's that's here that's I was thinking about in connection to Wondrously Wounded a bit as well is um, a, that theodicy isn't the driving factor in what you're doing here, um, which I think is, is so much of when we think about like the questions posed by disability, it, it, you know, it, it, if I've been to a night at a church or read another book, it, it's so often that is how, okay, we've got to wrestle with this question first and primarily. And I think a really good reframe is what you do is, no, this is about a different kind of question, a different kind of way of living and approaching this that's actually about, as you say, our own, all of our own living into this diversity and growing into what the gospel calls us to. I think that's a really helpful like thing just for folks to know is that that framing yeah. and how that yeah. pushes both books forward. Yeah. I mean, almost universally, if you ask Christians what Christians should think about in terms of 
disability or what theological categories they should, should uh, slot disability under, they will almost always say the fall. So um, uh, Adam and Eve sinned and so uh, the world and is, is sort of broken and therefore accidents and anomalies happen that generate disability. Now, I, I think it's descriptively the case that that's what most Christians think we need to say theologically about disability. And I'm, and I'm asking the pastoral question, okay, well then how does that help you deal with somebody with a disability in church? And it, the answer is it doesn't, right? That's not how people with disabilities are seeing their lives. And as I walk readers into in the book, um, I think it also hides from us the reality that we also will have disability experiences and probably people around us that we love are in the middle of them. Uh, yes. So there's a, there's a kind of foreshortening that goes on that we think we've explained disability with a theodicy problem that screens off a vast range of uh, pastorally and um, sort of existentially critical uh, territory. And it turns us into a church that uh, imagines itself in a, in a very truncated way. Mm. That's, that's really helpful. And I think you touched on there the other thread that I want to pull out, which I think is really important is, so I could, you, you kind of write about this in the book that when people think about disability, what they often are thinking about and talking about is you know, severe cognitive impairment um, or, or severe physical impairment, you know, someone is wheelchair bound or, or the like. Um, and, and in some ways I think, you know, people can, if, with that in mind, you might go to yourself in a really honest moment. My church isn't welcoming to those people. Um, and then you might go, but look, that's such a small portion. And I don't actually see anyone like that around. So look, maybe we're not that welcoming, but at the same time, we're not actually you know, pushing anyone away. Now, I still think that's wrong, but yeah, yeah. What, what I think it also, but what it really kind of um, obscures is what you're saying is that, well, disability is so much broader than that. And it's not only about, um, lifelong disability. There are many people who, uh, in some ways, you could say all of us, you know, in, in, or most likely if we live long enough, will, you know, become disabled. And and then others might have, you, you kind of use a story through early parts of the book about, you know, just a season of um, uh, you know, impairment in your own life and, and what that meant. And it's like, and so really the, the, the disability is nowhere near as niche as sometimes we want to make it think. And so unwelcome is, is not just this you know, small group that you can kind of imagine are not actually around, but is really about a much bigger yeah. um, group that could include so many people already there and 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 who are there, but not yet. Indeed. Yeah. Hmm. Yes. I so mean, that, a, yeah. a simple way to put it at the conceptual level is all of those, all of those categories that are named niche interests around what's quote unquote real theology, being a woman, being someone of, of color, being an indigenous person, Really, we could boil all those down to saying those people really aren't able to do as much as real people, right? So they're all ways of marginalizing uh, ways of living in the world. And uh, so disability, especially cognitive disability, becomes a, a special, especially focused case of, okay, well, then does Christian, Christianity have any way to live with and take seriously lives that don't do things. And once you start unraveling that question a little bit, you realize it's actually a 
incredibly corrosive idea to think that there's kind of normal people and they have full capacity and they do theology and sometimes they slip back from that and then we'll call that disability or sometimes they're in a special class uh like you know having dark skin or uh menstruating and those detract from normality um and and um much of the way we assume normality works and the way the church is is organized around this imagination that disability is just a way of sort of shaking that up i tell you you allude to the fact that i talk about um sort of having a the uh the kind of embarrassingly stereotypical power tool accident (laughs) nearly cutting off a finger on my right hand and um walking through how um it became difficult for me to be reconciled to the new way that my body had become. Um, and that revealed to me, I do think that there's a functional finger and, a, and an unfunctional finger, that there's a beautiful and an ugly finger. And that if I can think that about my own body, uh, it's of course a, a way of cashing out Paul's unsightly member mm-hmm. imagery in first Corinthians that, yeah, I can, I can be repelled by a part of me. And if I can be repelled by a part of me, which is with me all the time and which I need, how much easier is it going to be to be repelled by somebody else whose body sort of provokes all the fears that I have about becoming like them? Yeah, thank you for that. That's that's really helpful. Uh, So you write in the introduction, um, in noticing the diversity of the bodily experiences of the people around us, we begin to glimpse aspects of scripture that we had previously missed. And, and I'm curious just to, to ask you if, if you've had such an experience yourself uh, where you, where you, that, that comes to mind easily that we, uh, yeah, that's a time that I remembered some, I noticed something new, I glimpsed something. Yeah, sure. Um, let me give two examples around sight and blindness. Mm. Uh, in, you know, contemporary Christianity, we tend to think of, Paul as the kind of swashbuckling, uh, aggressive debater type. Um, and uh, the, the blind theologian, John Hull, showed me the importance of Paul's ways of talking about sight and imagery. Um, he he's, uses foggy mirror ideas, uh, scales falling off of eyes, blurry vision. In general, he has a much less binary descriptions of uh, vision imagery than other books like the gospel of John, where people are either sighted or blind and they, they're kind of stone blind or fully sighted. Um, That's just not how it works for Paul. And Mm. you know, this, this is the apostle who says at the end of Galatians, see what large letters I use as I write with my own hands. So um, that troubles what I assume about who this figure was. And that gives quite a different slant to what he's saying when he says, um, uh, uh, you know, he's a follower of Christ and him crucified uh, and that he has a thorn in the flesh. He's, he's take on quite a different ring if we think about what it would mean for him to be visually impaired. Mm-hmm. Um, a similar example, uh, I learned, I was sort of enlightened by Kirsty Jones, um, uh, who's a uh, doctoral student. Um, and she did a, uh, a disability reading of the Samson story pointing out the obvious uh, 
punchline that what gets the Philistines killed is their assumptions about disability because they mm-hmm. lead him in. This is a blind guy, right? Let's, let's bring him in and laugh at him. And because he's blind, he's incapable when mm-hmm. in fact he was fully capable, as capable as he ever had been mm-hmm. um, because his hair was what gave him his supernatural strength. So there's a resonance there of how deadly our own prejudices can be um, that, uh, you know, it's, it just doesn't appear on the surface if you're not thinking about disability. Mm, thank you for that. And everyone knows we now recorded this at the um, turn of the hour. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, that's great. Um, that's, that's that okay? really, yep. yeah, yeah, it's fine. That's really, that's really helpful. I think yep. as, you, as you say, that's, that's um, two great examples of things being opened up in such a uh, interesting and, and exciting way. Um, so thank you. Um, another thing, so we talked before about um, the, the 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 pushing back on theodicy carrying over from both books. Uh, both books also wonderfully wounded, and and, and now this um, carry your a critique of inclusion. Because again, I think you know people might be thinking, okay, I'm going to pick up this book about how I can better include people with disabilities in 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 my church, um, and even in the way I've framed this hypothetical way of thinking um is is problematic so talk to us a bit about just that um that really the goal isn't um you know, inclusion in in the way a lot of us think about it yeah. um who, who've worked in organizations with you know in, in policies of inclusion or departments you know, depending on how big it might be yeah uh well of course i'm really glad that that language is there operating mm. um uh you know it's it's uh, i don't want people to read my critique as um, somehow disparaging the good work that people are Mm. doing who Mm. understand themselves as uh, doing work toward inclusion. Um, I'm making the point that's slightly different in different registers in Wondersly Wounded and now in this Baker book on disability. Um, That is that it's, it's, uh, it's actually bequeathing us a fresh set of problems and, um, Living with Adam, my um, now 17, almost 18-year-old son with um, significant um, uh, intellectual learning difficulties, Um, I'm constantly seeing what it means that he doesn't, for instance, think of himself as a victim. Mm. Uh, um, So if we think about inclusion and exclusion, we tend to fall into a a kind of um, oppressor um, uh, excluded, oppressed mm. binary. And, um, Adam just simply is not capable of thinking of himself as oppressed or a victim. So we want to make the world a better place with inclusion language. And we think that it is our responsibility to actively bring about justice and, um, inclusion is a way of saying, let's bring in the people that we've pushed away. And what I find constantly challenging and refreshing about living with Adam is that he's just here. He doesn't think of himself as a victim or as an outsider. And therefore he blows up our sense that we know how things work Mm -hmm. and we're helping him to fit into our world. Mm -hmm. Um, In reality, we're all constantly negotiating who we're going to be together. That's the Mm -hmm. diversity point. Mm -hmm. And if we're not wanting to do that, then we're abandoning people 
you know, pushing them out saying you don't fit here or violently coercing them into our ways of doing things, which often happens with, you know, let's say autistic children in church. Like you're either going to do it the way we do it quietly, or you're not going to be here. We'll do a special ministry that sort of takes you out of here. Yeah. Um, and I, so in, in that world, I'm increasingly aware of what a great gift it is that Adam doesn't mm. quit on us as we have to negotiate all of this. Um, and if we think that the only people with agency in such a situation are those who are responsible to include people with disabilities, ultimately we're devaluing his contribution to our joint lives uh, and his his patience as we sort of learn how to be mm. better Christians. Mm. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. That's great. So then um, after the introduction, you have a chapter uh Let's get it right. Um, nobody with disabilities in our church, and you you warn folks as you get in the in the introduction that it's not going to be an easy reading uh, that chapter. Um, so you know, and you kind of talk about it being this kind of a roasting or or, or a scolding. Um, I mean, it might be obvious, but I guess why why, why do you think it's important to kind of really start here? And and I guess what are you, what were you like thinking? Like this, you know, we need to go through this to open something up. I guess just yeah, thinking a bit about that. Um, and how you try to navigate that in, in a way that you know, guys are kept moving through. Yeah. Well, if, if disability isn't a discussion about the moral uh, necessity of good people to include people who have been excluded, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it's something else, I'm suggesting that the something else is that all of us are have misunderstood some aspects of what it means to be a Christian. So I'm using disability to press Christians to do some work on being better at listening to people who they perceive as different. So my target is churches, and I consider the churches that I've grown up in and worshipped in as um, far too quickly being comfortable saying that, well, some people don't belong here for one reason or another. They're essentially self-excluding. So they, you know, are living morally questionably questionable choices or they refuse to conform to our conventions of uh, one or another level. So they, they basically need to go someplace where they fit. Um, and that's why disability is really super useful topic because then we can ask, okay, let's grant there, there are churches that fit certain kind of people and there are churches that fit other kind of people. And some people just need to go to one of those other churches. What then do we say to people who are unable to conform? And this is where I think disability is extremely uh, morally and spiritually fertile because at that point you have to start asking some different questions. Mm -hmm. And I think it leads into a different gospel. So what I think is very hard in churches to provoke the question, could I be the problem? (laughs) And faced with someone who doesn't have the capacity to conform, to be quiet, to sit down in exactly the way we think they should. That's an invitation for us to examine how easily and often we presume that people don't really fit here. And mm-hmm. I think it has been my experience that churches that are capable of that kind of self-criticism do become churches that are comfortable with difference of all types, which is not to say, oh, right, pull the ripcord and anything goes and we don't have any moral standards anymore. Uh, which mm-hmm. is, of course, where people's imagination runs. Mm-hmm. But to say, um, 
actually we're probably more different than we think we are. We're pretending we're all the same here. Um, and that pretending is violent toward all kinds of people. Mm. And we just get to see that a little more clearly in cases where we're holding down a kid like Adam who doesn't really want to sit in the chair and would rather sit on the floor and makes guttural noises now and then um, and sometimes stands up and dance around. And like we, we're going to have to kind of handcuff this kid to the chair or kick him out. Mm. And the violence of that is a, is a kind of icon of mm. the need for some self-critical engagement about what gospel we actually are living. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that. That's that's really 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 important. And um, you're thinking about like you know that what kind of the gospel does this reflection lead us into? I think one of the you know important things you note is you know that Christianity confesses that we're fundamentally people who receive, right? We receive our life and God's grace and and things like that. And 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 you know we we are people who who cannot do things like we we you know that that should be a pretty fundamental Christian confession that we we cannot there are things we cannot do all of us, um so I guess how does how does this this thing that we a lot of people would say is yes absolutely at the heart of what it means to be a Christian what it means to confess a Christian how does that assist the task of disability uh, theology? Well, I. Uh, um... One way we can think about this is um, there's a famous example of uh, a biologist who sort of studied how ticks live, um, you know, ticks like the, the ones that suck your blood. And they kind of spend weeks hanging out on a blade of grass waiting for something that smells right to jump. They're blind and they sort of jump. And if they miss the, the target, they climb back and wait again until another one passes. Um, and uh, there's been some philosophical reflection on um, the tick is, it's very easy for me to anthropomorphize in a kind of Hollywood Disney-esque <laughs> way. Like, like I know, I know what it's like to be a tick and um, uh, no, it's, it's a, it's a different access point to the diversity of created life Um they really do have a totally different experience of living and acting and different view of time and um, a different view of the life cycle. If we think about that a little bit and think about it as a window into aspects of reality that we hadn't seen and how big a gap and how much work it takes to do that, we begin to be able to appreciate what the incarnation actually entails. Um, like that, that, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit came to us in our form was a far bigger leap than <laughs> us mm. trying to imagine what's going on with a tick. Mm. Um, uh, and that's what the eternal God has, has done to reach us. Uh, so we, um, to receive that, I think, demands recognizing that sometimes we have to travel an imaginative empathetic path toward people who come across to us as um, really having a totally different experience of the world. Um, mm. It's easy to project on them our experience of the world, but it's extremely enlightening to, to, um, to discover, for instance, that someone who's never walked or never spoken isn't spending day and night 
wishing that they could necessarily, mm-hmm. um, as we would, right? So there's a, we fear difference. And I summarize in the book for three reasons. We recoil from certain bodily conditions in the tradition. Christians started thinking about this first in their relation to lepers who were ostracized in the time of the early church and mm-hmm. were visibly you know, missing limbs and body parts. And so were sort of physically repellent and Christians started trying to say, if Christ died for the leper, can we really put them outside the gates and be physically repelled by them? Right. So we need to, we fear difference first because we recoil from certain bodily conditions and that needs to be examined. Um, second, we project our own fears of loss. This is the sort of famous, um, uh, 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 critique of prote- projection, which is basic to the discipline of uh, disability theology, which is um, I don't um, feel pain that I don't see as well as an eagle. And it never even occurred to me to feel pain to not see as well as an eagle. Why should somebody who's blind feel pain um, that they're blind? I mean, they, they might feel pain, but they also might not. And it might be part of their journey as a human being or as a Christian to come to terms with not um, being able to see and living as someone who can't see. So the problem of projection is that we fear the loss of our sight mm. and we therefore pity their condition. And um, of course, you can imagine if you were in that position of being constantly sort of pitied and and helped in patronizing ways, it would really be very off-putting indeed. Uh, and mm. that is often the experience of people with all sorts of disabilities. So we mm. recoil from conditions, we project our own fears. And I think finally, this is where the different gospel comes in. We say that we believe in Jesus and him crucified, as Paul put it. But um, the way we react to disability often reveals that in fact, what we believe in and hope for is is success, you know, being, mm. being up front, being leaders, being articulate, uh, being educated, being rich, growing our churches numerically. Um, that so there, there's a to to wrestle with disability and ask the question, what does faith look like if those success stories seem no longer accessible? What do we believe? And just to say, oh, the world is broken and fallen, is not. You know, that's that's not answering the question yeah, at all. Yeah, yeah. Great. Yes, thank you. That's really helpful. Um, so after you've kind of done that chapter of the, the, the Nobody with Disabilities in Our Church, um, the next three are kind of built around, I guess, very common refrains or um, guiding ways of thinking about disability that are probably, you know, not as helpful as we sometimes think. So like, I'll just read them for folks because people will be interested. So it's Jesus heals everyone he meets. Uh, God shows you because he knew you could handle it. And, and kind of, as you've been pointing out this idea that disability is a tragic effect of the fall. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> I joked to you when I was like sending you through what I might ask. I was like, if I was really lazy, I would have just like basically just like, Oh great. That's, that's three questions. That'll take us a bunch of time, but you know, we don't want to give away the book um, <laughs> and people should really go and check it out. But I, I guess I might just, we might just talk a little about the first one about the healing. Cause I think that's such a, you know, a tough wall for a lot of people to come, come get over in this point. Like, so, so, you know, how do we deal with this idea that Jesus actually brings people, you know, makes blind to see, 
right? So we've just been talking about, well, surely the, you know, is in pain. So you know, but Jesus seems to decide that someone should be able to see. Um, yeah. And so what does it mean for us to be thinking about healing and disability in light of that? So I guess, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, we'll leave the other ones because everyone will go and buy the book and, yeah. and really explore that those in those chapters. But we'll, we'll talk a bit about uh, healing here and this, yes, that, Yes, because obviously also you thought it was pretty prominent because you tackled it first. So I think yeah. that's, you know, let's talk a bit about healing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the first thing to notice is that Jesus surely would have passed on any daily commute, myriad of people um, mm. uh, who we certainly would think of as, as needing healing. Um, and there's not a single hint that he is doing drive-by healings um, so that you yeah. know just textually speaking that's not how the story runs in scripture mm. and another clue that we need to think deeper about these questions came from uh, uh disabled christians who um for instance very often get drive-by healings um, mm -hmm. from christians who sort of turn up and say you know would you like me to pray for you or if they go to a healing service for instance um uh almost always they would be looking for healing for some, something specific, uh, mm. you know, uh, uh, an illness, a specific illness, not necessarily their global condition. Mm. Mm. And I want, it became clear to me that it was, you know, there's a lot of stories from people with disabilities of having gone up, you know, being in a wheelchair and going up because they've been struggling with pneumonia and wanting to go to a healing service for that. And like not even being asked, but being prayed over for, uh, um, their, you know, mobility mm -hmm. deficit, not their illness. Um, mm. right. And that, the, the kind of presumption there is really quite hurtful yes. to disabled people. And, and I hear that quite a lot from them. So, um, that took me back to Jesus and asking me, why do we read Jesus in that way? Why do we assume basically that mm. he's a, that he's a doctor, uh, <laughs> yeah. he's, he's dressed in a, in a white, whatever toga in our imagination, but uh, it, it's subtly morphed in our own minds into uh, the lab coat of a, mm. of, a, of a contemporary doctor. And so in the book, I work backwards a bit into our own presumptions about what counts as healing um, and mm. why, if we think of healing in a certain way, we're going to assume something about scripture that's actually not in scripture. Mm. Um, so uh, I summarize it in five points. We think of healing in medicalized terms as primarily function on, on focusing on the curing of an individual biologically rooted sickness. Mm. Um, and one of the ways we can get clearer about what's going on here is notice that all other forms of healing practice are typically called alternative medicine. <laughs> um, right. So there's kind of real medicine and real healing. And then there's alternative medicine, eating better, changing your lifestyle, mm. acupuncture, Eastern practices. So, you know, in the West, we have a very mm. sharply defined, scientized definition of what healing looks like. And of mm. course, we're going to read that into scripture. And in that world, secondly, uh, biomedicine is focused on the individual's body as the locus of sickness. Um, so modern medicine individualizes illness as in, uh, in, in one body. And third, mm. 
it then says to the patient, here's what you need to do to fix that, right? It doesn't. Other cultures, such as the one Jesus lived in, often have a much more collectivist understandings of how health and sickness operate, who mm. makes decisions about treatment, who needs to do, make a change if someone is going to get well. Mm. Um, fourth, uh, the modern medical professional tends to strike a stance of scientific objectivity, you know, professionalism, uh, distance. I'm not here to ask about your private life. I'm here uh, avoiding emotional connection as a technician helping you get to uh, health. And finally, modern doctors have very narrow domains of expertise. Um, they treat parts or even systems, but they don't address whole persons, mm. uh, in, uh, even in their whole body, let alone their whole life. So mm. if modern medicine teaches us to see sickness as something localized in a single body, physical body, without reference to social or psychic context in which they exist. And when the healer is someone who has a professional distance to the person being cured. Um, and of course, that's totally unconnected to all religious belief and practice. Well, that's not what kind of healing Jesus is doing uh, in the New Testament. So it's it's a category mistake to think that there's a direct one-to-one identity between what Jesus is doing, which, for instance, uh, is focused on returning the person who's healed to the community of worship, right? Healing sins, making them clean so they can worship again. None of that's part of what we think of as healing. And um, as I I sort of point out in various places in the Bible, like the end of Job, um, it doesn't say that Job's skin condition is healed. Uh, and if we think about healing in the theological frame that I've just outlined, it doesn't need to say that um, mm. his his skin was healed in order to say that he was restored. Mm. Yeah, thank you. That's 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 really helpful. I think, um, yes, as I say, just just a complete shift in the kind of the way we we think and the way we use words um, about now, about then. Um, so. The last kind of chapter is, you know, we don't know where to begin and how do we begin and looking at that. And, and um, it's a really, really helpful chapter. And I was, I was just going to one part where you talk about, we were talking before about how, you know, we, we project fears onto that or how, you know, your, your own story of, 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 you know, hating this member of your body that, that you know, that that was brought up, or, you know, all this, you know, anxiety was brought up and, 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 and you know, I, you know, even unassumed ideas of normality and and of function and unfunction. So, as the church begins, or as churches begin to begin this work to think differently about disability, embrace people with disabilities, be be led into this diversity of Christ's body. Um, you know, deep anxieties will provoke, be provoked, and that disdain for difference will be exposed. Like you know, if, if all of a sudden more people are you know there you know and 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 that's going to change um how it's going to bring stuff up that we've been able to ignore because it hasn't been there so i guess I'm, I'm thinking about how churches balance then this important work of you know there needs to be this disruption within us you know and, and these these anxieties and disdain needs to kind of be brought up to be worked through but then you don't want it to be worked through on the people who are now coming in right sure. so yeah. so how do you how do you, you kind of in that 
pushing into that unsettled and uncomfortable space not become a space of more like if it's been this kind of benign unwelcome all of a sudden becoming a kind of almost hostile unwelcome um, because things are now at the surface. Um, And, yes, I'm I'm curious a bit about about that tension and, and any thoughts you have there on that work. Yeah. Well, if we say that the default setting is many churches in different varieties being places in which disabled people might get the sense, yeah, I don't really fit in here and nobody's too concerned about that, right? So the, mm, mm. Um, if that's one option <laughs> and another option is, oh, we're we're kind of affirming, inclusive, there can very often be a, a, a an equally unsettling tokenism. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, great. We've got, you know, some people of a range of excluded classes and now we've got a disabled person and we're really excited to have you and thanks for being here and thanks for being disabled, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, no, you know, none of us want to be included on those terms. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just trying to help us all think a little better about what the alternative to those dominant options mm-hmm. might be. And I, I, in the end, I am saying nothing much more um, complex than if you're at ease with um, the reality of uh, your own mortality and vulnerability, and if you're at ease with there being difference within the body of Christ and that being good, <laughs> then um, you will see more of it. It will come across as enlivening, not threatening. It won't mm. provoke your fears. Um, mm. That that's the spiritual work. That's the basis of all technical programs, right? Like I also raise questions about disability ministry because um, it's very easy parallel to the problem with inclusion Mm -hmm. to set up a special ministry, find a professional to do it for those people and Mm -hmm. then uh, practically uh, not have to face these questions. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, I really want all Christians to face these questions. And Mm -hmm. um, that's why I've, sort of started in chapter one by, ask, by by sort of noticing the sociological reality that there are a ton of people with all kinds of disabilities across every society. And the fact that they're not in churches means they've been driven off or mm. they're not seen as relevantly disabled. Um, and so my way into that, into all of that complex of blindness is to say, we probably will all have a um, something like a disability experience, and we need to ask ourselves what that's going to be like and what that means and what that reveals about what we hope in, our narratives about success and mm. what God wants from us all. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Brian. That's, that's really helpful. So, I mean, that's that's one just for the book the book <laughs> disability living in the diversity of christ's body uh out with baker academic uh, please go check it out and pick it up and 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 think it through brian thank you for coming on the podcast i'm curious so you know as you said you you got to the point that you knew what you wanted to say uh you knew how you wanted to say it for the academy and now you know how you want to say it for the church what's now what do you want to say now what's next uh, or do you not know that yet that's okay too um uh, well i i have a few things on the bubble uh along with this baker disability book over the first lap of the pandemic i was uh editing and revising uh a, a, a set of a collection of essays from my german teacher hans ulrich um 
that'll be out soon uh, under the title Transfigured Not Conformed Christian mm-hmm. Ethics in a Hermeneutic Key. Um, and I really, you know, alongside this popular book, I was really diving deep into what it looked like as German Christians recovered in the early years after the Second World War, mm. in which every aspect of their culture and theology had been mm. exposed. And uh, I used a uh, sort of telling Hans Ulrich's story. Um, he told me about seeing um, Nuremberg, which was uh, heavily bombed, and mm. um, seeing one of the famous churches there, the Lawrence Kirk, um, being open to the sky with all the windows blown out. And mm. I, I found it extremely illuminating and educational to think with that nine-year-old child who had to mm. um, discover and knew what it means to be a Christian in a world when everything's blown out and all of the resources seem to have been used for such corrupt purposes. I think, mm. I think it's, it's a, it's a useful exercise for young Christians. It certainly in the Western world today, who I think are really wrestling with the, the, um, the bad fruit of mm. a 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years of especially the Protestant type mm. theology. Mm. Um, the other thing that I've, I owe Baker, um, and is already under contract is a big book on creation and Christian ethics. I've been working on for 10 or more years. Um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, I don't have enough pandemic lockdown to finish it this go around, <laughs> but, uh, I hope to get it done before another 10 years elapses. Yes. Well, well, yes, we'll, we'll all keep our, our, keep you in our prayers and we'll keep our eyes on the horizon for that book. Thank you, um, <laughs> but Brian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Again, uh, folks check out both of these wondrously wounded and disability, um, living, living into the diversity of Christ's body and, um, Brian's other work. And, uh, yes, especially these ones that are coming out. So thanks for that. And, um, we'll see you all next week, folks. Bye. Thanks so much, Liam. <laughs>